So this is a neglected book, maybe the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's seldom preached, um, but it's a really important book for our day, so I'm really glad for that reason that we're getting, we want to preach the whole counsel of God in this church, Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament, Obadiah, Nahum, have you heard those preached before? We want to get there. Uh, we, want to, we want to understand the scriptures and through them understand and know God intimately and experientially, personally. And so we want to, this, is, this is a book that it's really good and necessary for our day. Peter comes strong. Peter's a pretty strong personality, pretty blunt speaker. And he comes out against heresy in the church, against false thinking, which lives, leads to false living. Uh, and leads to, in this case, Christian permissiveness, kind of living how you want to. Because, hey, Christ, we don't even think he's going to come back. Where is he now? Uh, and so it's, it's a really important word for our day. It's a dark book. It's, it's a bit of a, it's, it's blunt. It's a bit of a punch to the gut. So Peter probably wrote this in prison in Rome, mid-60s, between 65 and 68. He probably was crucified upside down um, in, in Rome in 68 AD. And so this is right before he, he leaves. And he actually says in the text that Austin read in this chapter, that the Lord Jesus himself has told me recently that my time is about up. And we'll talk about that a bit in the sermon. But this is his, in a sense, his last will and testament. This pillar of the church that Jesus said, your name is rock and on this rock I will build my church. Meaning both Peter and his confession of Christ, of the good news of the gospel. Uh, Christ would build his church on that and he did and he has. And for 2,000 years and more, it's prevailed. And so uh, let's find out what Peter thought so important before he left, sort of his, his final words to us. The first, the first point is that God's grace, and we'll stay here for a bit, God's grace leads to godliness. So God's grace leads to godliness. If you just jump into verse 1, look at verse 1 if you have a Bible or on the screen, God's grace leads to godliness. It's one thing that Peter really wants to pound into into his readers and remind them of over and again. And even he says, once I'm gone, I want to make sure that you're still reminded of these things. So he's, you can imagine him setting up elders, training them, making sure that, that, that the people of God are reminded that God's grace doesn't lead to license, doesn't lead to living however you want to. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6. In fact, it leads to the opposite. It ought to lead to looking, having our lives look like the life of our master who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ. So verse 1, he says that you've, it's an, he's, got a bunch of astonishing statements in this little chapter. He says, you've received a faith, saints, that he's writing to, of equal standing. Okay, you've received, or obtained rather in the ESV, a faith of, if you have the ESV, it's our Bible of choice, our translation of choice, a faith of equal standing with ours. With ours, who's ours? With, with Peter and the other apostles that Jesus spent time with, that they saw him crucified, they ate with him resurrected. They saw him ascended. They were charged. They preached the first gospel after he ascended on high and sat with the Father. He's saying, you stand on equal footing with us, is what he's saying. And this really, is, it's shocking, but it's wonderful. It's a reminder to us of what we call the priesthood of believers. We have been made, uh, we have been made priests and kings and prophets. All of us are on equal footing with the apostles, with Peter, in a sense, with Christ himself, who calls us brother. As amazing as that is, and Peter has another gobsmacker, as it were, to use a British term. Later, he says in this chapter, you've been made partakers of the divine nature itself. It's an amazing phrase. It's, no, it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. So we'll get to that. But in short, he starts out with this, 
with this charge saying, look, you stand equal with us. That's because everyone in the world, there are only two places of standing. Either you're outside of Christ and you will be judged on your own merits and woe betide that person when Christ returns or when they pass and stand before him and try to plead their life before a holy God based on what they've done and what they've thought and what they haven't done. Or you stand secure and complete and righteous and covered in Christ. That's it. Those are the two positions. So if Peter says right out from the gate, you stand equal with us. That's an amazingly heartful thing. Now, the second thing, I, I mentioned um, the word received to those who have received a faith of equal standing. The ESV has obtained in verse 1. Uh, it's not as good of a translation. The ESV is a great translation, but I think in this case, in, in a lot of cases where they maybe don't choose the best word, what, what you'll see is that they've gone with the, K, the King James Version, which they will tend to do because it's an excellent translation, Old and New Testament, unless it needs to be updated or, or bettered. And so here they went with obtained, but I think received, according to the Greek and the commentators that I trust, is better. So instead of obtained, which can be reception, but obtained can also be, hey, we've obtained a faith, we've kind of, we've done something to earn it. Received really just says, hey, our faith, even our faith, it's a gift that we don't deserve, we haven't done anything to earn it. And that's really the word that, that Peter's using here. It's used in classical Greek um, in the only two times in the Gospels of of receiving something by casting lots. So you, you've done nothing to receive this thing. You've, it's simply been given to you as a gift. Um, our faith, even our faith, is not something that we earn. It's not something we've labored for. It's not something we're good enough to believe on Christ and be saved. God bought it for us, and he's given it to us in Christ. Even our faith um, is a gift. We can't vote. Here's what that means, just quickly. One, if we have it, if we have, if we have trusted in Christ and we continue to trust in him, we can't take credit for that. We can't boast about that. But number two, if we haven't yet, we don't need to try to work it up. We need to ask God for it. It's a gift that he will gladly give us if we ask him. So if you don't have it and you want it, ask him for it. It's a gift from God that Jesus Christ has purchased for you by his blood. And we can also, as we're sharing the gospel, we can have a lot more confidence knowing that this person, I don't have to be as convincing as possible. We want to be as convincing as possible. We want to speak the truth boldly and in love and convincingly, but knowing that faith is a gift. It's something only God can give and praying for that for that person. So, and then also faith, Peter says what? He says, faith received a faith of equal standing with ours, what? By the righteousness of our God. So again, just to iterate this, reiterate this point, our faith is, is our faith if we trust it in Christ and continue to for one reason. It's given to us by the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. He purchased it for us. And faith, in a sense, it's the anti-work. It's not doing something to get to God. It's saying, I can't do anything. I've done so much to offend you. You've done everything. I believe on you. You did it for me. You suffered in my place. You lived a life of perfect obedience in my place. So even faith is by the righteousness of another, of Jesus Christ. Um, in verse 3, Peter says, he's granted to us all things for life and godliness. And that's such an encouraging word because I think in our culture, and obviously in Peter's culture too, I mean, he's speaking out against heresy, false words, false gospels. There are a lot of words out there that say, hey, 
Christ plus in some way, if you just get the second baptism, if you, just get, if you could only speak in tongues, if, if uh, you learn, if you get a seminary education, if whatever it is that's Christ plus, okay, there's no, there's no extra Christianity. What Peter is saying here is that in Jesus Christ and in his death and life and resurrection and reign for us and his imminent return to us and for us, we have everything we need, everything. There's nothing that we're missing. And, it, and Dick Lucas, he was sort of a mentor of, of uh, I see Lewis, of Tim Keller. He says, he's an old London preacher and pastor. He said, uh, that supremely important word, everything, is both a tremendous encouragement and a tremendous warning. It's an encouragement because it means that there's nothing extra, again, to find out or gain access to him. Uh, or to gain access to than we've already obtained just through being Christians, just through believing on Christ, and even that faith is a gift. The gospel is sufficient for us to meet God's requirements. Everything God requires of us has been met because when he sees us, if we trusted in Christ, he sees Jesus. Pastor, sheep, pope if he's a believer, drunk that's fallen down in the streets, lecher, lecherous person, a criminal, who believed on Jesus Christ, equal standing. We have what we need in Christ. He, he is the source of all life and godliness. And really, really what we're going to get into is that what Peter says is it, that's the essence of obedience and walking in purity and in virtue. And, and everything else we need in life is looking to him, fixating on Jesus and on what he's done for us on the gospel together. Um, but Lucas goes on to say, if there's a major scientific, artistic, moral, or philosophical question or even a matter of personal decision-making, which the Bible does not address, then we have to assume that although it may be intriguing and important from a human perspective, it's irrelevant to the quest for a godly life. We have what we need given to us, revealed to us through the Scriptures, which point us to Jesus, the person, the man, the God-man who came for us and draws us to himself by faith. Um, verse 4, so that through them, Peter says, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through what? How do we become partakers? That amazing phrase that's only here in the New Testament. How do we become, sinners that we are, partakers of the divine nature? Not through pastor, not through another person or a personality. We do it through the promises given to us in Scripture, all of which are realized in one person, Jesus Christ. We do it through the promises. They're all, the life of God is ours through the promises which Christ brings to us. Not through a certain pastor or person. Um, and it's, it's an amazingly hopeful, hopeful thing. So we've been made, if we're in Christ and have trusted in him, partakers of the divine nature. One, uh, it's a jaw-dropping phrase. One commentator calls it breathtaking. And then from that, he goes on to, to outline in verses 5 through 7 sort of what you ought to add to your faith or supplement your faith with. Okay, and it kind of seems like he's saying, okay, believe on Christ and then do these things too in your own strength. It's not what he's saying at all. Again, he's just spent the past four verses saying everything you have, you have in Christ because of what he's done for you through faith. That's given to you as a gift. And then he goes into this litany in verses five through seven, steadfastness, self-control, love, brotherly affection. Um, it is all through the person of Jesus Christ, by faith in him, looking to him. And he's saying, look, this grace that we've been given as a gift, 
it shouldn't, it shouldn't lead to license, to doing whatever we want, to living how we want. That's not the Christian call. If you're living like that, you need to question, as he says in a few verses, your election. Rather, you need to make the fact that he's chosen you and put his love on you sure by steadfastly running after this kind of lifestyle. Um, but grace of God doesn't lead to license. It leads to godliness, is what Peter's saying here. It leads to godliness, okay? That's the first point. Um, and if you don't believe this, Peter says in verse 8, you're going to be, literally, there's a category for this. We see this in the scriptures a lot. We see it in Hebrews chapter 6 and other places. We see this all throughout the Gospels. We see it in our daily lives. Maybe we are in this place. It leads to being ineffective as somebody whose sins have been forgiven and unfruitful. And even, Peter says, you whose eyes are opened, it's like you're blind. If you have this category where you think, man, God's chosen me and he's poured out his favor on me, therefore I can just kind of live how I want to, and in a sense I've forgotten about the fact that he's reigning and will return, and I'm taking for granted his blood spilled for me, Peter just, he says, man, you are so far off track. Wake up. Wake up and remember. I want to remind you of these things. But if we're honest, a lot of times that's kind of our Christianity or American Christianity is I just kind of, I would never say this out loud, but I want to be saved. I want to trust in Christ and then kind of live as I please, sort of, maybe come to church some. Um, but man, Peter's just saying that there's no category for that. That exists, but he's admonishing us not to live that way, lest, lest we think, rather think God's chosen me, I can coast. It's no, God's chosen me through no good of my own, so make your calling and election sure by steadfastly pursuing these things that he outlines in 5 through 7. These, really the word is virtues, these excellencies in the classical Greek. Um, and again, not drumming them up, but fixating on Jesus Christ, looking at the gospel, looking at everything we have that's necessary for life and godliness is in Jesus Christ. He is our repository. He is our life. It's a life of faith from start to finish. The gospel is not the ABCs, and then we go on to start obeying our own strength, Jesus. The gospel is A to Z, as Tim Keller would say. The gospel is the A to Z. There's no, like, believe on Christ and then, and then start going on my own. That's not the way it works. The gospel is everything. It's a life of faith through what he's done, and it works out in a changed life as we are actually made partakers of God's nature. We begin to look more and more like Jesus, who's given his life for us and who was in us. Um, James Hogg, a 19th century Scottish writer, he wrote an extraordinary novel called Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. The central character is so absolutely convinced of the certainty of his salvation and sure that he's a member of the elect that he commits a series of increasingly gross and self-indulgent acts. He's so secure in the belief that his behavior will not affect his eternal destiny that he feels completely freed from any restraint, even to the point of murder. The book was written as a sharp parody of an extreme position, says Lucas, and we should be grateful that very few Christians have had the foolishness and wickedness to go so far, and yet, if we're honest, a lot of us in various portions of our lives sort of live with this mentality. We coast, but Peter's saying, no, don't coast, crush it. In light of your election, crush it. Run hard after Christ, keeping in mind what he's done for you, that he's reigning, and that he is going to return. And every deed that's done or not done in the flesh will have to be accounted for. And yet, it's all by grace. Okay? Um, in verse 11, again, he really talks about how as believers who have been given everything we have in Jesus, it matters how we live and our deeds, what we do, 
will ring throughout eternity, okay? The riches of our inheritance, Lord, that are all given by Jesus, but how we live that out day to day, it matters. No, nobody believed in, you know, hardly anyone maybe, maybe Paul, but believed in the sovereignty of God over every single affair more than John Calvin, and yet he said, when we do things or don't do things, it matters. We have hands and we have feet for a reason, and when we don't do something Christ has called us to, if we're in Christ, there is real loss, and there is real gain when we do. You know, you look at this list in verses 5 through 7, and, and we kind of rattle through them as, as believers. They're, they're things that we're familiar with. But man, when you put it up next to, there are lots of lists of virtues in the ancient Near East, in the classical world, in the Mesopotamian world, and none of them that I've looked at look, look like this. They're sort of, the lists that are listed off in the ancient Near East, courage, sort of uh, moral excellence, abstaining from certain things, um, uh, sobriety, other things. They're, they're like manly virtues that you can, you can drum, you can discipline yourself and do these things. But these, when you look at these, these virtues, they're really relation, they're things that come from relationship. They start with the first, the first of them in verse 5, it's, the list starts with faith, which again is the anti-work, and it's given to us by God through what Christ has done. And it ends with brotherly affection, love for our fellow man, affection. But you won't find that in the lists, the ancient lists. And then love, and the word there is agape, the love of God, unconditional, that he has and gives to us. So it, it starts with faith and it ends with love. And this is the life of God in you. It's not, again, it's not something that you just work hard to, to attain to. It's being connected to Christ. It's the life of faith. It's letting the life of Jesus flow through you by the power of his Holy Spirit and surrendering to him and knowing him. And then he, be, he allows us to partake of his nature and the sweetness of Jesus actually becomes more and more who we are. As surely as we are in Christ, Christ begins to fill us more and more and we begin to live more and more like him and look more and more like him. And that's a, that's a witness to a weary world, to a watching world. Um, there's a... I mentioned this movie too much, but Never Ending Story, you guys are so young that like two of you have seen it probably, but if you haven't seen it and you're feeling kind of psychedelic some Friday night, go check it out. It's a good book too, but I, as a kid I loved it, and it's got this catchy tune, The Never Ending Story, and he, he rides this crazy, the, the kid rides this crazy like luck dragon, and it's great, it's a great movie. But he goes, it's this adventure quest, the hero, a hero quest, and Atreyu, the, the protagonist, goes through these series of tests, and the first one is the Southern Oracle, and he barely makes it through, and then the next one after that is the next gate that he has to pass through, and it's snowing, and it's, he's in this howling, wintry waste, and he gets to this mirror, and, and it's actually more of a test, the narrator says, than the first, the first one, uh, than the first gate in the Southern Oracle, because in the mirror, as he gazes into the mirror, he actually sees his true self. And the, guy, the narrator says, most people run away screaming in horror when they see who they are down deep. Most of us fool ourselves into thinking, you know, we're doing okay or whatever. We don't want to dig too deep, and it's a protective mechanism. But, you know, God sees everything, and that we can only do that for so long, right? And if you live with someone, and you're, you're married to someone, and they know you well, and they have to live with you and you with them, like, there's only... They know you intimately, and man, I mean, either you have a choice to either get down in there and dig and let them dig, or just cover up and not really be known. And, and um, it's terrifying. 
in a sense, to see your true self and all the imperfections and impurities. And most, most of us, if we do that, if, we, if God would to, were to pull back the curtain or if people, if the psychologist or your spouse or someone that you're close to has, cares enough to pull back the sort of curtain in your life and to, say, and to point to stuff, it's, it's frightening. But the fact is, what Peter's saying is that Jesus, we see him and what he's done for us through the mirror of the scriptures. It shows us who we are in all of our sin, and it shows us who he is and what he's done for us. And the fact that he took our sins seriously enough to go to the Roman cross for us. And the cross not only tells us how much God loves us, but it also tells us how much, how seriously he takes our sin. And the, the more we feed on that and meditate on the scriptures day and night and let that be part of our mindset and worldview and conversation with each other and with the Lord and meditation, the more that we see Jesus and the more that we see that he's our identity. That's what Peter's saying. He is our life. He has all we need for life and godliness. From him alone flow our virtues. From him alone flow our full acceptance in God, no matter what we've done. And it has the opposite effect on us. We don't run away screaming, but instead we run to Christ and say, nothing else, I'm made for nothing else but you alone, Lord. So uh, this, is, this is what Peter's talking about when he says, look, um, the grace of God is to lead us to godliness. And then secondly, and, and, and much more briefly, it's, it gives us something, the scriptures give us something more sure, okay? Um, verse 19, if you look at verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, that's what my ESV says. The older ESV translation actually says, and we have something more sure than what Peter's just been talking about, the prophetic word. And he's just been talking about his experience with Jesus, seeing Jesus transfigured in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he goes from that and says, we have something um, more sure or that uh, the prof- we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Okay, why the different translations? Because there's the Greek's ambivalent. The Greek's ambivalent in short. So um, the new ESV, the one that I have in front of me, prophetic word more fully confirmed. What Peter's saying is, look, I, I knew Jesus better than anyone. I know Jesus still. And, and our experience of Christ confirms what the prophetic word of the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had at the time, tell us. And what they tell us is that Messiah's coming, and he's going to make a way for us to be with God, and he's going to rule everything. And he's going to invite those who look to God and his promises into that through no good of their own. And so he's saying, look, what we've seen of Christ lines up completely with the Old Testament. It's not something new. Okay, so that's, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, okay? Um, but if you look at, we have something more sure, which is the way that it could read, and sometimes there's a double on, or there's a double meaning, and maybe Peter means both. It could well be. Um, he's saying that, look, he's saying something astonishing. We saw Jesus on that mountain, three of us, John, James, and me, and I, and we saw him with our own eyes, but you who have not seen him as we did, you have something. Here's the astonishing thing. Again, in this chapter, something even more sure. You have the Old Testament. You have the scriptures. They show us who we are and who God is in his plan, and Jesus Christ has fulfilled it and has realized it, Okay? It's an amazing statement about the integrity, the veracity, the power, the reality, the reality-shaping power 
of the Scriptures. And then Peter goes on to talk about how did these Scriptures even come about? And he says, he says that um, they weren't produced in verses 20 and 21. They weren't produced by the will of man. Not, no pro- prophecy was in the Old Testament. Okay, when, when he says prophecy, he's really talking about the whole of the Scriptures that they have in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, nothing of that, even though it was written by men, it didn't come just because you know, Isaiah sat up one day and thought, I think I'll write some stuff down. I'm going to journal a little bit. He's saying that that's not the case. Isaiah wrote, Moses wrote, Jonah wrote, David wrote. But actually, it wasn't their idea. It was, was not done by their will at all, but God's will through them. And God didn't override their personalities, but rather, the Holy Spirit, he says, carried them along or filled them in such a way that actually... He brought these persons and their context and their gifts and their proclivities and tendencies into who they were really made to be. And that's what happens when God fills us by his Holy Spirit. He doesn't override our personalities. He uses our personalities, and he makes us who we were intended to be. And that's what full possession of, uh, by the Godhead of, um, of Jesus Christ and of the Trinity through what Jesus has done by his Holy Spirit does to us. It makes us who we are supposed to be. And if we're, chasing, if we're trying to find ourselves, that's the sort of a, a motif for today. If we're trying to find ourselves in any other way, um, it's just not going to happen. Peter's saying, when the Holy Spirit fills you through the work of Jesus Christ, that's when you become who you were made to be. So that phrase he uses there, men of old were rather carried along. It wasn't by their will, it was by God's will, and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a word that's used in nautical texts of, of the wind filling sails and carrying a ship along an ancient ship. And so that ship was designed to be filled with wind, to be carried. And so it is, so it is with the way that the scriptures were written. In other words, God 100% authored the Old Testament. But so did man. And, and some people, and that's of course a picture to us of how the, the word, lowercase w, leads us to Jesus, the capital W, the word. It's, it's, it's meant to do that. You know, Jesus in John 5 stand, stands in front of the Pharisees who had large chunks of the Old Testament memorized. And they thought that the Bible was the end, in a sense. They had begun to worship the text. And he said, I stand in front of you, I who the scriptures point to. John 5, 38, 39. And I'm right in front of you and you're missing the entire point. They are to take you to me. I am the end game. I am the point, as Peter's been saying all along in this chapter. And yet you're, you miss me and you're going to crucify me. But that, that, too, is going to be part of God's beautiful plan. And some people object to the fact that God wrote the Scriptures, not overriding men's personalities, but actually working through them, and say, well, he worked through sinful men, which is true. So it has to be, a, it has to be an imperfect text. And there's a great illustration. B.B. Warfield, 19th century Princeton scholar and biblicist and theologian, said, no, not at all. God in his sovereignty, he... he like, and, and actually the, the, um, the image of, of light through stained glass was used to support this idea that perfect things can't be written through imperfect men. And when the light, when the perfect light comes through the stained glass, then it changes, it's refracted and distorted. And Warfield said, no, God is sovereign in such a way that he knew exactly the colors and the layout that he wanted, and he used the personalities of the men for the light of God to pass through and to color the page, as it were, exactly as he wanted it to be. And so, Whereas Timothy, whereas Paul in his letter to Timothy tells us that God, what God's word is, it's the very breath of God. It's not just a, a word of man that God breathes into, not just inspired. It's actually the expiration 
the theopneustos. It's the breath of God. Peter is here telling us how that happens. And it's beautiful. And it's the way that God works in us. He makes us who we were created to be. And what we have here is a sure word that we can bank on. And it takes us to Jesus. It takes us to Jesus. And there's a whole bunch in here about really, and just take my word for it. I hate to say that as a pastor, but uh, there's a whole bunch here of verses in this chapter, in chapter 3, and, um, and elsewhere, where Peter is saying, in a bunch of different ways, we, just as God worked through covenant to make a people for himself and to prepare us for Messiah in the Old Testament, every time in the ancient Near East that a covenant was made with a deity, and certainly with God, it was codified, it was written down. That was standard, ancient Near Eastern practice. Okay? It was written down so we could go back, they could go back to it and say, here are the terms. God gave us that, and it's called the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament. It testifies to what God has done, his plan of salvation. Just as Christ has fulfilled that, we ought to, as good Jews, as the people of God, we, they were all expecting, not surprised by, a new covenant, a new testament, codified, written down, to complete. But actually, it was just, it was what they would have expected. And what Peter's saying is, He's putting himself and Paul, whom he mentions in chapter 3, on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. The prophets and the apostles. We are speaking the very words of God. We are telling you the very words of God through sinful men, perfectly put to you. You can have more confidence in who God is through that written word, Peter's saying, than you can even in when what we were seeing with our own eyes when we saw Christ on that mountain transfigured. Amazing. And lastly, um, knowing Jesus, just a few minutes here, wrapping up, knowing Jesus, we have something more sure. Firstly, God's, uh, God's grace is to lead us to, um, to godliness, not to license. And secondly, we have something more sure by which to know God through Christ. And lastly, knowing Jesus, man, just laying the plane on knowing Jesus. That's really the thread that, that, that flows throughout this whole passage is Peter, if you read this passage carefully, and you might have noticed it reading through the first time, over and over he uses the phrase, the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus, or through knowledge, add to knowledge virtue. He's over and over again in verse 2, in verse 3, uh, in verses 5 and 6, talking about knowledge, but it's probably knowledge of Christ, because it comes from Jesus, and it leads us to, verse 8, again, knowledge of Jesus. In verses 16 through 21, as he finishes the chapter, he's talking about knowing Jesus through his experience, which is confirmed by the prophetic word that's given to all of us, the scriptures. Okay, so it's really the whole chapter. It's not about a list of things to do. What does he say? It's about knowing Jesus. This is how we live as new creatures in Christ. He has, it's, it's, the word he uses is epignosko. It's not, it's not uh, just cognitive knowledge in the Greek. This word, it's tied into the Hebrew, of course, yada, which is the chief word for know and in the Old Testament, and Peter's saying, as a good Hebrew, as a good Jew, using a different language, he's saying, this is not just a cognitive knowing things about Jesus, and in that way we can imitate him. He's saying, no, it has to come through a connection, a personal connection, a relationship with the living God through Jesus, walking with him, talking with him, trusting in him, his spirit in you, the same spirit that inspired and breathed out through men the written word. He's living in you. He's making you a partaker of his own nature amazing. Um, Neil Anderson, he says, he's an author, he says, theology can make us proud knowing a bunch of stuff. Okay? Satan knows a bunch of stuff about Jesus. Satan is the most proud being in the universe. 
Theology can really puff us up. Knowledge can puff us up. But knowing God, he says, never can. Really knowing, not about God, but God himself. Do you know about God, friend, or do you know God? Have you been brought into relationship with the living God through the work of Jesus Christ? Have you believed on him? That's what being saved means. It means to walk with Christ, to know Jesus, to become like him. As you, you become like the people that you're with. God wants to know you. That's the whole point of life, man. If, if you're sidelining that, if you're working at hours a day and not thinking about him, not dwelling on him, not meditating on his word, not walking in prayer, man, you're missing out. Not just thinking about what he's done, but meditating on who he is, loving him through his Holy Spirit, thinking about his reign and knowing that he's working all things out through his reign, through you, his servant and beloved one, and that he's going to come back. He has it all planned out. He's going to return. And that, one, one commentator says, his return is like the North Star that guides the choices that we make, knowing that we will give account, knowing that he, no matter what kind of pain or suffering or privation we're going through, he wins. And in him we win, and he is going to come back and vanquish evil. And all those who have not trusted in him will have to answer to him for their own deeds and their own works. And we who have trusted in him, we get to know that we're safe and that we're loved and to preach that to a, a sinful, dying, lost world and, and then to live his life out as we pursue the virtues that Peter lists here that end in loving our neighbor and loving God. It's, 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 it's a new creation. So, Again, back to sort of ancient Near Eastern lists, like there's no other ancient Near Eastern religion or philosophy I've come across that is like this, where the chief call from Peter and from the others, from start to finish, from Genesis 1 all the way through, I mean, God made us for himself to be in relationship with him. Salvation is a restoration of that possibility. There's no other ancient Near Eastern code that is about where the gods, the gods are saying, we just want to know you. We just want to be loved by you. We just want you to love us. We want to be in relationship. There's nothing, we take that for granted as Christians 2,000 years after Christ came, but there's nothing else like that. It's, it's codes. It's live this way. It's pay this to the God. Give us your pound of flesh, and we'll give you something. That's not at all what Peter says this is about. This is about knowing and being known by the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, look at verse 14. Peter says, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me, I'm going to die soon. And what is he saying there? He's saying, look, in the same way that Jesus, when he was bodily on this earth, and I could touch his face and hug him, and he could rebuke me to my face and wash my feet and all the adventures and things I had, and I could betray him as I was, I could deny him as I was looking at him, and he was loving me at that moment. It's the same in John 21, it's the same, in the same way that he took me aside after his resurrection and said, brother, I died for you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? And oh, by the way, here's how your life's going to end, friend. You're going to be bound up. Now you do whatever you want. You go where you want to go, but your, your life is going to come to an end in such a way that you're not going to be able to do what you want. You're going to be bound up and tied up. And it was a prophecy of his, he was telling Peter, this is how you're going to die. And right a year or less within his death, 30 plus years after that moment, he's saying, Jesus is, he's reminding me of that, the same Jesus, and he's telling me, he's talking to me, and he's telling me, yeah, remember that thing? I've been talking to you all along. We have relationship. You know me better than ever, and I'm in heaven, and I've given you my spirit, and we are intimately connected, and I'm telling you, it's coming. 
and, and, and uh, good tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down um, in, in or outside of Rome because he was going to be crucified as a leader of the church and as a Christian and for his faith and allegiance to Christ, which he did not deny. And rather than, uh, again, tradition has it, then rather than being crucified in the same way that his master was, he said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. Do it upside down. Crucify me upside down. And Peter is saying the same Jesus is telling me that time is coming. And it's an honor. And I can't wait to see him again face to face. It's about relationship. Um, this Peter, uh, a lot of people have a lot of beef about um, the first verse and how Peter, he starts off the book. See, this is at least Peter's second letter to the churches. In the first letter, if you look at First Peter, it starts off, Peter says, Peter. He's telling his writers who he is. This is Peter. But in this one, he says, Simeon Peter. And, and commentators make a big deal out of that, unbelieving commentators. And they say, oh, this can't be the same Peter. He called himself a different name. And actually, you know, the simple point that my professor made once, he said, like, if, if this were a forgery, the, forger, <laughs> the, the guy that was forging this, pretending to be Peter, um, if, there were, if this were a pseudonymous letter, the guy would have looked at how Peter wrote First Peter, and he would have said the exact same thing. He didn't do that. It's an easy, you know, it's an easy thing. But instead, if you're, I, you know, you have a, very, a variety of names for yourself, and actually, what Peter does here is he calls himself not Peter, which is a Greek name, not even Simon Peter, but he says Simeon, which is a rare expression. Simeon Peter, which is what? It's his Hebrew. It's his Hebrew expression of his name. And what is he saying? He's saying this. It's saying, he's saying what he goes on to say in the, in the rest of verse 1. The, we have, what we have here, as I close, let me just say this. What we have here is a nose-bleedingly high Christology given to us by Peter who knew Jesus. Here is a good Jew, a monotheist. There's only one God. He's the Genesis 1 God. He created all things. He needs nothing. He's always existed. He is separate from his creation. And he is saying, in, at the end of verse 1, he's saying, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is calling Jesus the one creator God of all things, the God to whom I have always looked, Jesus who walked with us, who hung on a cross for us, and who rose from the dead because he is the living one and death could not hold him down. He is the one and only God. And yet in verse 2, he goes on to say, he makes a distinction between God and Jesus Christ. There is only one God, and yet he is multiple in his personality. And then he mentions the Holy Spirit at the end of the chapter, doesn't he, in verse 21. Peter understands what he is saying is, I am a Hebrew. I have only ever worshipped one God. That has not changed. Who is this Jesus? He is the source of life. He is life itself. He is the creator, and he humbled himself to the point of death for us. If you think there is any other way to life and godliness, think again. He has done everything necessary for us. He has revealed himself fully to us in the scriptures. Take it to the bank. You can be as sure as I was on that mountain of who God is. Open up the word. Meditate on it day and night. Talk about it with your children, among each other, with your neighbors. And trust on Jesus Christ. 
You have what you need. Come on, friends, I'm going to keep repeating this. I'm going to keep repeating this till the day that I'm crucified, till the day that I go. It's my job. It's the job of a teacher. It's the job of a teacher. And so it's a privilege to be able to stand in Peter's line and do that with you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for, it just seems cheap and tawdry to even sit here and I have no words to thank you for what you've done. I don't have adequate words. Thank you for being so humble, so loving, that you, the creator God, the only God, would become one of us, take our sin upon yourself, pay for it, and bury it. Lord, woe betide anyone, God forbid, that any of us would try to find another way to you, would try to present ourselves as clean to you in any other way than through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would um, help us to live right in light of who he is, what he's done for us, his reign and his imminent return. May it be our North Star. Take us through this, this time in Second Peter. Make us um, more like Jesus, partakers of the divine nature that we've been brought into. In Jesus' name, amen.